Turn your Bibles to Luke 19. Luke 19. And I'm going to ask if you would be honor in honoring the word of the Lord. Stand. I'm going to read from the scripture. And if you would just follow along. I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. You may have a different version, but we'll all wind up at the same spot. Okay, Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. A little longer passage than I normally read, but... We're going to read through verse 44. So if you need to get a drink of water, go ahead and do that now. So I want you to be comfortable. All right? Verse 28, Luke 19. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, and on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were, sent, who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Verse 41, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, speaking to this, the people, the city, and known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And from the day, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. That would happen in the year 70 A.D. when Jerusalem would be besieged and destroyed. Verse 44, And tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that you'd speak to us through your word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Napoleon Dynamite may be an odd place to start. <laughs> How many of you have ever watched the movie or been forced at gunpoint to watch Napoleon Dynamite? All right. My people. My people. Do you remember Uncle Rico? Uncle Rico <laughs> was probably in his late 30s, early 40s, and Uncle Rico just, he, his life seemed to stop in high school when he played football because that's all he talked about, what could have been. And there's one scene where he's sitting on the porch with his nephew Kip, and he makes this statement. He said, hey, Kip, you want to see me throw this football over that mountain? 
little hyperbole there. Yeah, you know what? If the coach had just put me in at fourth quarter, we would have made state championship. No doubt. No doubt in my mind we would have made state championship. Now that seems like an odd thing to remember on Palm Sunday, but as I was looking at this passage, I want to talk about broken dreams this morning. Here was a guy, and maybe we relate to him in some way, that his life and glory and everything that mattered was what could have been. And he never seemed to get beyond what could have been. The grandeur, the glory of making the final pass in the fourth quarter of that high school state championship game had somehow missed him. There's a lot of things in our life that we have hoped for, that we've desired, that we've dreamed. And sometimes we live our lives always looking back, reminiscing. What could have been? What if I had gotten this job? What if I had uh, married this person? What would have happened if I had gotten this amount of money or won the lottery or whatever it is? We're just always living kind of with these broken dreams of the past. And it seems to we're never able to get beyond it as we grow older. I believe that this morning on Palm Sunday, there may be some broken dreams here. And in our passage in Luke chapter 19, I was struck by a particular part of this story that I'll mention in just a minute. But just to paint the scene, this is, a, this is party time in Jerusalem. They are, uh, they are great crowds have gathered. They're waving their palm branches. They're welcoming Jesus as he comes, there's dancing in the street, there's great excitement, but in the midst of all this, there's also great sadness. What's interesting is that this group that is proclaiming King Jesus within a few days are going to be demanding Barabbas and crucify him. Jesus, because he is the God-man, he knew what was in their hearts. He always knows what's in the hearts of those that are around him, and he knew what was in their hearts. But look at these words again in verse 41. Party time was going on, but Jesus wasn't in a party mood. These words in verse 41 that says, As Jesus drew near to Jerusalem, he saw the city, Jerusalem. And what did he do? He wept. He wept over it. Jesus in his ministry was always about the Father's business. He was about the kingdom business. He was always talking about the kingdom of God. When he taught us to pray, how did he teach us to pray? Not my will but thine be done. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Eighty times or more in the gospel he's talking about the kingdom of God and yet they didn't get it, but they're saying with their mouth, blessed is the king, but they don't even know about the kingdom that he's talking about. They don't get it. They don't have any concept of what Isaiah would talk about, about the suffering servant. Remember Peter, when Jesus told his disciples how he must suffer? Peter pulled him aside and said, pulled out his Schofield Bible and said, Jesus, um, uh, you, you can't do that. Now, in case you, that there was no Schofield, so don't, 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 don't lose train of thought there. Jesus rebuked him because Peter was saying, no, 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 because the concept 
the concept in that Jewish mindset was not of a one who would be sent from heaven that would be crucified. It was one who was going to be a liberator. It was going to be a Jewish George Washington that would come and liberate them from the tyranny of Rome. The idea that, now wait a minute, your concept is you're going to go and you're going to allow yourself to be killed and that's your plan? Um, I don't think that's a good plan, Jesus. But that's what the scriptures foretold and they did not know what the word of God said. The Bible says that Jesus wept over the city. And again, let me just reread some verses there in 41 through 44. If you had known, if you had known, again, on the surface, there's great activity, but really what Jesus is identifying and saying is he's understanding the tremendous rejection that is about to come. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, I believe every born-again believer has a day of visitation. And especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. They thought that peace would come through the sword. They thought the peace would come through having a liberator, somebody that would come and bring revolution. You say, well, that's crazy. Not really. We fall into that. We think if we elect the right guys of this political party, then they're going to bring somehow usher in the kingdom of God. Let me tell you something. That ain't going to happen. It never will. The only way kingdoms are changed is through the sovereignty of God, through the preaching of the gospel, because you've got to change hearts before you change a culture. You can make all the laws you want. You've got to change hearts, and only the gospel can do that. Jesus said, for days will come upon you, speaking again of impending judgment, when your enemies will besiege you. And I'll just paraphrase it there. These crowds, they were welcoming him. Welcoming him. But what I want you to see here is on this Palm Sunday road, okay, Jesus, the King, that we find a broken dream in the midst of all the palm branches. What do we do with our broken dreams? I venture to say there's not a person here, there's not a human here, unless you're a very young child, and even children have wonderful dreams, that somebody, that we do not have the experience of disappointment in our life, that we do not have things that, that we had hoped for, that we dreamed about, that we would do, and somehow things did not go the way that we desired. And I believe just this morning, briefly, in the time that we have, I want you to notice three things on this Palm Sunday, is that broken dreams can hurt. Jesus felt the pain of a broken dream. He wants us to know this morning that when everyone else is waving their palms and, uh, and branches and shouting hosannas, that you know what, there are those among us, maybe you here today, that hurt in the midst of the festivities. Secondly, Scripture, I believe, wants to remind us that broken dreams can also heal. Jesus went from Palm Sunday to a garden where he prayed. Broken dreams can bring healing when God is in control. And last is that our Lord reminds us that broken dreams can help. Jesus kept doing the right thing, which was doing the Father's will, obedient to the end. He kept moving forward on his journey, even the Bible says in Hebrews uh, chapter 12 that with joy he went to the cross. He stayed 
on mission. He stayed on the purposes of God. And so this morning, in just a little shorter time of message today, let's look at this first one, is that broken dreams can hurt. And I'm taking this from chapter 19, verse 41. Now, as Jesus drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Can you get the picture? Jesus is on this colt, this donkey, as he comes into the city. Now, if you're kind of like me, you're like, what's now... Wouldn't it be better if he was riding a big stallion? Wouldn't that be more, you know, powerful? But um, it's interesting that donkeys, when, especially kings, when they rode a donkey, it was a symbol of humility. And there's a scri- few uh, scriptures in the Bible. J.R., uh, not J.R. from doubt, but J.R., J-A-I-R, in case you, that threw you off, was a judge in Israel for 22 years. He had 30 sons, and in one festivity there in Judges chapter 5, all his 30 sons rode donkeys into the city. And again, it was a symbol uh, of the powerful that they were just like the people of humility. Solomon, you know, who's, now I know we have King Solomon here. Good to see you back, brother. But not him, his, the other Solomon. Um, at his coronation as king, the Bible says in 1 Kings one thirty-eight that he rode a donkey at the coronation. It was a symbol of their humility before the people. We do that. We see that in politics. It always makes me laugh. You know, that, you know they show Mitt Romney you know, somewhere up in New Hampshire and he's flipping pancakes. You know, always got to pull the... And I'm not picking on Mitt. Name whoever you want. But I mean, it's just like, yeah, they're there for about five minutes or Habitat for Humanity. They show up there and it shows them banging a nail. You know, put the shirt sleeves up, work shirt or whatever. All right, cameras off. All right, all right, where are we going next? You know, I mean, because they want to be seen as one of the guys. They're just a working man like us, right? So we, we, we kind of have a little bit of that today in that concept. But Jesus here, get the picture, he's, he's, he's coming into the city. There's great expectation. And what is he doing? It says that Jesus is weeping. He, is, he, is, he wept. Jesus in the Bible, and I find this very telling about this passage that would be easy to go over. There's another. In fact, it's the easiest Scripture in the Bible to memorize. John chapter 11, verse 35 says, and I bet you know it by heart, Jesus wept. See, a bunch of Bible scholars here this morning. He wept. Now, what I find interesting that helps us understand this passage on Palm Sunday is that in that passage in John 11... The Greek word used for weeping or crying means to shed tears, but it's depicting more of a kind of a silent crying. You know, when sometimes you're, you, something, you're watching something or a scene and you just find yourself eyes watering up and you just find a little lump in your throat. It's kind of that. It's what when Jesus was at the tomb of his dead friend, that's the Greek word that is used here. That's not the same word that we find here in Luke chapter 19. Quite the opposite. The word that is used here describes an, a pain of deep grief that leads one to cry with a deep or loud sob. You say, okay, so what? I think that's very significant. I think that's very significant than just 
tearing up because Lassie died. And then something profound where you have, you ever had that uncontrollable weeping? It may have just lasted a minute, but there's something that just the overwhelming grief overcame you. When I went back to my pastor friend that we served together in St. Louis and I was fine, but when I came into that empty sanctuary that day and saw the casket open and there was my friend that we served for eight years in ministry, 47 years old, in that casket, I was overcome with a moment of deep sobbing because in that moment it just kind of, the reality of what was happening really hit me. Well, that's what I want you to see here in this passage. In fact, it's the same word. Do you remember when Simon Peter, when he denied Christ and, and the reality of what Jesus had said came into his, in his mind and he realized that what Jesus said that he would deny him three times and the rooster crowed and it said he went out and he wept bitterly? That's the same thing here. So that's significant. So let's look at Christ here. He's seated on the donkey. The people are cheering. Palm branches waving. He tops the hill. He sees the city and he begins to weep and sob. I've never seen that depicted in any movie about Jesus. Never seen that. And I think there's something there that we need to to hear. Jesus is weeping with a loud overcoming sense of grief. In the Old Testament, I'm reminded of Joseph. Remember when Joseph told everybody to leave the room and he revealed who he was to his brothers and it said that his weeping, I'm paraphrasing, was so loud it could be heard throughout the palace? That was a, you know, there's a brokenness of emotion, Jim, you know, that happens in our lives when truth and the reality of a situation, and and, and again, I just want you to get that drama there that's happening here. Here he was, he healed the sick, he cleansed the lepers, he fed the hungry, he had given hope to the depressed, and now they might on the surface, their lips are saying one thing, but Jesus knows that these same people have rejected him. And they're going to be crying for a thief and a murderer in his place within days. They wanted him, just like in John 6, when he was handing out free food. What did they want to do? They wanted to make him president for life. We haven't changed much, have we? People that promise you free stuff, you're ready to line up and get them in till you realize that free stuff is coming out of your back pocket or somebody's back pocket. They didn't want him for who he was. They wanted what they could get out of him. They saw in him this liberator that was going to be the answer to all their political hopes. And finally, Israel could be returned back to the Davidic glory of yesterday. And this was the guy to lead the revolution. But yet, Jesus Wept, the one who spoke universes into existence. Colossians 1 says that by him all things in creation were made. He, flung, he was involved in the one that flung the stars, the planets into orbits. And yet we met people with closed human hearts that he had come to save and he came to rescue. What does John 1.11 remind us? About how he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. I think there's a broken dream there in the sense of what Jesus 
if we could use that term, what Jesus desired, that he would come to give his life. He says he wept. He said, if you had only known what makes for real peace, I am your peace. If you had only known that the day of your visitation, I was with you for 33 and a half years, and you missed it. I don't know about you, but that's a tragedy. Now let's kind of fix it into our own situation. As somebody that is around the ministry and the gospel for years and years, they've heard the song sung, they've seen worship, they've seen Christian ministry at its best, not phony baloney hypocrisy and people dealing under the table with nonsense in their life, but genuineness. And the Holy Spirit is working in their lives all along, and yet when the day is done, they go the other direction. I think the Lord says, you missed your day of visitation. You missed the day when I was visiting you. And how I longed, you may be here this morning, how I longed to draw you to myself. But you never, never could do it. You were willing to wave the palm branches, but you never were willing to bow the knee to me as Lord. Jesus feels, I believe, He came to do the will of the Father. We know that those whom the Father had given to Him, no man shall take Him out of His hand. I understand, we, we understand all that, but there's an element there in which this deep grief and sting of disappointment that Jesus is sensing on the parade. Broken dreams can hurt but I believe only for a season. The Lord Jesus didn't weep forever. He went on from Palm Sunday to secondly to remind us that broken dreams can heal. And I'm going to have you turn over in your Bibles to Luke 22. We'll just, we'll just kind of move, move to the right a little bit, a few scriptures. But go with me to Luke 22. and Look at broken dreams not only hurt, but there's healing in these broken dreams. Jesus, days later, would be in a garden. The Bible says as he prayed, he said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. What this, this, this mission that from eternity I've known, there, there's never been any doubt, but yet the, in the humanness of Christ, he was going to face death. And I'm not just talking about he was going to get a shot and go, go, you know, to sleep. And this was going to be the most cruel and agonizing death that humans have ever foistered on one another, to die on a cross. He says, let this cup take it away from me. But, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then the Bible says in Luke, then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. So Jesus went from the hurt of that pain of coming into Jerusalem. But as he realigned himself in the purposes of God, there began to be a healing because he knew that he was on task and mission for what God had sent him to do. He is moved from Palm Sunday to the garden a few days later, confessing his grief. My soul, he says, and... Matthew's companion uh, passage of this in the NIV, Ma- Matthew 26, 38, he said, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow in that garden. 
but he says, not my will, but yours be done. In the midst of our brokenness, folks, in the midst of our hurt and pain, I wish, <laughs> wish, but there's no other formula than when you come with your brokenness and hurt and you come before God and you say, Father, not my will, but thine be done. And we think, okay, when I, when I open my eyes, everything's going to be back the way it should be. Most of the time, in fact, it's not like that. You're still going to get a divorce. The cancer's still going to rampage the body. There are things that still happen. But we say, God, I rest in your sovereign purposes for my life that I don't just give lip service waving my palm branch when everything's great, but in the garden of absolute pain is when I find your healing and not my will, but yours be done. That you are the God who works all things together for good. You know when I hear that word together? If you take all the ingredients to a cake and eat all those separately, it probably ain't going to taste as good as when that nice fudge chocolate cake is made, right? Just take some eggs, take the powder, I guarantee you, that ain't going to work. But God takes all the mess and together, together, only He can mix it in the way as the master that that will come out for good. That's the sovereignty of God. That's the reason when you are downcast, you look up. You look to God. Do not be deceived in thinking that the things are lost and there's no hope. What did Jesus do? He got into that place where he said to his father, God, you've got it all under control. I'm sorrowful. I wish I didn't have to walk through it, but I'm going to rest and receive my healing in who you are, that you're bigger than the mess and you're bigger than the bad. The third aspect this morning... One scripture I didn't read earlier, but it's pertinent. Remember what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4 of how, again, Jesus experiencing real hurt, real pain. He's, the Bible reminds us that we do not have a high priest who is, unable, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That means every sin... See, and, and Jesus experienced the full force of temptation and sin and yet failed not. I don't, there's not any one of us who have experienced the full throttle of hell itself to cause us to fail and sin. Jesus did that. He looked, the, he looked the enemy in the eye, stared him down and won and was victorious. We've never experienced that full force of hell itself. We usually bail you know, partly through the, the temptation. But Jesus experienced the full force and he was without sin. Yet, the Bible says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. We're not praying and we do not have one that sticks closer to a brother that does not know exactly what we're experiencing and has not experienced the pain and sting and hurt of bitter disappointment where somebody's done you wrong 
and they're prospering. You know, we want them to, you know, well, I won't give you any ideas there, but that would not be holy. But you know what a little revenge would make us feel a little better about the situation? You know, where they get what's coming to them? Listen, thank God you and I didn't get what's coming to us. That's what grace is. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Colossians 3.3, that my life is hidden with Christ in God. Thank goodness we didn't get justice. We got grace. We got mercy. So don't you, to whom much has been given. Ever heard about the unforgiving uh, you know, servant there in the Bible? You who have been forgiven much, and because somebody didn't pay you back because you bought their lunch at Zaxby's, you're ready to nail them on the head? Think about how much God has forgiven you and done in your life. Listen, God is the great equalizer. Things have a way, God has a way someday of making all that is unfair and unrighteous, and He will one day make it all perfect and complete and whole. We rest in the purposes of God and not what we try to get in there and try to do ourselves. And the third is broken dreams. Not only hurt, there's healing, but broken dreams can help. Help? What do you mean help? Take a right and go over to Luke 24 again, or or just the last turn there. Luke chapter 24. This is after the resurrection that we'll celebrate next Lord's Day. Verse 36, Jesus meeting with His disciples, His followers, those 11. Remember Judas? He's gone. And Jesus said to them, peace to you. You remember their reaction when Jesus was crucified? Remember Peter? I mean, they thought this thing... It was, a, it was a great ride for three and a half years, but Peter's probably thinking, I'm glad I didn't sell the fishing business because I'm going to need it. And that's what he did. He went, he went back to what he knew. Jesus resurrected alive just as I said. I told those Pharisees, you destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They thought he was talking about the physical building, but he was talking about his life. Jesus said, peace. In verse 45, he said, He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. In other words, that they would begin by the power of the Spirit and the resurrected Christ begin to connect that what Jesus was telling them all along was true and accurate. Verse 50, And he led them out as far as Bethany, And he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. Verse 52, and what did they do? And they worshipped him. And it says they returned to Jerusalem with what? Great joy. And were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. What did Jesus keep doing? He kept doing the will of the Father. And what he experienced in his hurt and in his healing, he became the vessel to tell them it does work all, God does work all things together for good 
and according to his word. And I am the first fruits of the resurrection. And he knew on that, on that Palm Sunday, he knew, and he knew from the, before he left the portals of heaven, he knew his best friends would bail on him. He knew he'd be humiliated. He knew he'd be beaten. He'd be, he knew he'd be nailed to a cross. And yet, he never missed a step and stayed on target. He followed the will of God. And because he followed the will of God and he's resurrected, we can come before God with great courage and confidence because Jesus has shown us that even though there is weeping and mourning for a season, there is a day and season and a morning of joy that will come. So what do we say this on Palm Sunday? Be faithful where you are. God has a plan for you. And just because you have a broken dream, don't quit. Don't quit. Don't give up. Broken dreams. God never, here's something I read a long time ago, God never wastes a tear that comes into our life. He never wastes a hurt. He's working all things. You say, oh, but you don't know the mess that I've gotten myself in. Isn't that what we've been learning from James? Yeah. He's a master at taking your mess and making a masterpiece. I have observed through life and just reading and observation that those who have been used most by God are those who have had the most severe test by God. I could give you names of people that you know by virtue of their uh, significance and Christian media or whatever, and I can tell you the pain of, of one or two of their children who are not serving the Lord or perhaps involved in, in living a life or doing something that is so contrary to what they're upbringing, and they've walked that walk. Uh, God works all things together for good. As I was, again, praying about through this week and this message and how to wrap it up, the Lord brought to my memory Madeline Murray O'Hare. So we've gone from Napoleon Dynamite to Madeline Murray O'Hare and Palm Sunday's in the middle. You may not or may remember that Madeline Murray O'Hare in 1960 petitioned the Baltimore public school system because as an atheist she was offended that her son Bill, William Murray, who was a born-again believer now, been for quite some time, but he was the one who was used in that petitioning that prayer in the public schools was unconstitutional. And so she went forward. And in 1963, the United States Supreme Court agreed that prayer in school was unconstitutional and therefore many of you who grew up in public school settings where you were allowed to pray is now considered unconstitutional. And now just a heads up, nobody can outlaw prayer in schools, okay? Let's just get that out of the way, okay? And frankly, to be honest with you, do we want some kind of generic, all-encompassing religious uh, prayer that means nothing to anybody to be said in school to make us feel better? I don't think so. Do you really want to pray some pagan prayer that the Muslims and Hindus and the Buddhists and Wicca and the Christians and the Unitarians all can agree on? What kind of prayer is that? That's not prayer. So let's... Okay, that's free. (laughs) 
after she was, she was actually murdered by one of her fellow workers. Sad, sad story. Her son and uh, granddaughter were kidnapped and held for ransom and later were brutally murdered. But they found in Madeline Murray O'Hare's journals some interesting material. And it's really quite a sad story. But in one of her journals, I don't know the date or when, but she had written several times all through this journal of a period in her life this statement. All I want is somebody to love me. Think about that. If you remember when you had, you know, Phil Donahue and they'd have her on there and she just was somebody, she's like some of these people you see on TV, they just know how to incite the worst in us by the things that they say and the mockery and there's just something that just rouses up and yet in the quietness of her life and bedroom she's writing, all I want is somebody to love me. And I wonder how many Christians might have encountered her and spewed hate and resentment and anger and there, you never know what's going on in somebody's life. All she wanted was somebody to love her. Let me tell you today, if you're in the midst of bitter disappointment, God loves you. And God's power can heal the deepest hurt in your life. And He can bring a healing. He may not reconcile. He may do, do this. But, but God has a way of working in ways that you and I could never dream or fathom. And sometimes we won't be able to see that. One, until we're later on in life, and perhaps we will never see it in this life. God is committed to us. You know how I know that? Because He invested the most precious commodity, commodity He has, and that's the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. God is more committed to you than you are to Him. And if you want to get lost and you want to reject God, you're going to do it with, the, with, the, with heaven's force against you. Because God has marked you and committed, to you, committed Himself and His Son for, your, for His glory and your redemption.